two Barclays analysts. One hot topic, all sides explored. This is The Flip Side. The Flip Side is a new podcast series featuring lively debate between two Barclays research analysts, taking opposing viewpoints on timely topics of importance to economies and businesses around the globe. Hello and welcome to Barclays The Flip Side podcast. I'm Marvin Barth, the head of FX and EM macro research at Barclays. And today, I'm joined by my colleague, Andreas Kolbe, head of EM Credit Research. Hello, Marvin. Hello, Andreas. Today, we're going to be debating our highly contrarian Rethinking Emerging Markets thesis, um, or REM as we call it. Most investors take it as a given that EM, Emerging Market Assets, will outperform advanced economy assets over the medium to long run, even if they are more volatile in the short run. But I would submit that technological advancements that once promoted globalization to the benefit of EM now increasingly advantage developed markets. But Andreas, you don't necessarily agree with me here. That's right. I believe that EM will remain an attractive place for investors to earn long-run returns for the foreseeable future, really. EM offers diversification, and new technologies create new opportunities in markets that are underrepresented in global portfolios. Well, this is what makes the, the flip side fun. It's all about clearly defined differences, and it sounds like we have the makings of a great discussion here. If you don't mind, Andreas, uh, let me start by defining for our audience what the Rethinking Emerging Markets thesis is, and then we can turn to your defense of investing in EM. Sure. Go ahead, Marvin. The REM thesis is about the evolving macroeconomic effects of technology on globalization and the emerging market growth model. Advancements in information technology are what enabled firms to manage and thus develop complex global supply chains accessing the cheapest labor around the world, which was generally in emerging markets. But increasingly, technology now competes directly with labor. In a rapidly widening spectrum of goods and services, robots are actually now the most cost-effective uh, solution and cheaper than labor anywhere. Why then move production offshore if robots can do the job more cheaply, efficiently, and with fewer errors where the richest consumers are? This undermines the dominant growth model for much of EM, selling cheap labor to move up the value chain in the global economy. Okay, I think I do understand your thesis, Marvin. There is no doubt that technological process creates winners and losers. But this doesn't mean EM as an asset class gets left behind. New technologies may displace workers in some industries and in some countries, but they also will open new opportunities for economic participation and growth in other EM countries. For example, mobile phones allowed much of Sub-Saharan Africa to leapfrog past fixed-line infrastructure and have integrated those countries more rapidly into the global economy. Andreas, I'm not arguing that AI and robotics will end employment in emerging markets. The Industrial Revolution began more than two centuries ago and we still have a quarter of the world's population working as subsistence farmers. Uh, but I think that the outsized gains that we saw in EM assets in the last two decades were not due to subsistence farming. They were built on the convergence of those emerging markets with richer economies. And that came from the globalization that was built on foreign direct investment from advanced economies that made EM workers more productive, supported higher wages, and more broad development in these economies. If the companies that were doing that foreign direct investment now can produce those goods more cheaply in their own economies with robots, that foreign direct investment 
uh, model sort of dries up. But why don't you expect EM economies to pick up the bottle and run with these technologies themselves? Why do they need the FDI to continue to move up the value chain and grow? Isn't it exactly those opportunities for self-development that make investment EM more attractive? Well, I think those would be the most attractive opportunities, absolutely. I'm just skeptical that emerging markets will. I mean, the first point is that prior to the advent of the information technologies that enabled uh, the logistical management of these complex supply chains in starting in the 1980s, um, there was little to no convergence of EM economies despite the same wage gaps and same opportunities that, that now exist. Why is this time going to be different, I think? And then the second point is that our research confirms findings from the economic literature that most of the productivity growth in emerging markets over the last couple of decades really has been due to foreign uh, direct investment from advanced economies. Well, I really think you're painting EM with too broad a brush here, Marvin. Perish the thought that a macro guy would paint with too broad a brush, Andreas. Hmm. EM is a very diverse universe. You have countries like Korea and Taiwan that arguably now should be considered advanced economies. Then you have countries like China that have both sophisticated technologies, but also still rural poor populations. And then you've got the frontier countries, um, say in Sub-Saharan Africa or in Asia. Increasingly, these economies are developing each other and are no longer reliant on advanced economies capital. For example, as Chinese labor costs have risen, companies there are turning to places like Ethiopia with even cheaper labor. To give you some more numbers, Marvin, in 1990, 83% of Sub-Saharan Africa's exports went to developed countries, but only 37% of exports went to developed countries in 2018. That's quite a large difference, isn't it? It's definitely a big difference. But I think the startling thing about the Rethinking Emerging Markets thesis is that the data suggests this has already been going on for nearly a decade. And people are only just now starting to wake up to that. And it is the foreign direct investment that I'd point to. Uh, foreign direct investment into most EM economies from any source, advanced or emerging market, peaked in the period between 2010 and 2012 in relative terms. And since then, has been shifting back to developed economies where the new growth opportunities are in the so-called knowledge economy. The only two exceptions are the rich East Asian economies that, uh, as you point out, really are advanced economies, not really emerging economies, and also the very poorest economies. But on that last group, when you dig into the data, it looks like most of that investment is actually political, not economic. It comes from things like China's One Belt, One Road initiative. So what? I mean, these countries will still benefit from an upswing in FDI. Yeah, but I wonder how sustainable that is. I mean, why would China, one of the world's leaders in both uh, AI and robotics, continue uh, to uh, turn towards these cheaper labor countries when they themselves can do it cheaper with, with robots? That would be entirely at odds with their China 2025 program of actually onshoring all these basic production needs. But global investors are already structurally underinvested in EM assets, and they will need to play catch-up. EM countries just represent too large a slice of the global pie, in terms of population, in terms of economic output. EM economies are 60% of world GDP and 90% of the population under 30-year-olds. But EM assets are only 17% 
of global asset markets. I, I don't think I, I agree with that thesis. First, the, um, in nominal dollars, which I think is really the way you should measure it, EM economies are only about 40% of the global economy, not 60. Um, and you know, nominal dollars are what pay dividends and, and interest payments, not purchasing power parity dollars. But uh, more importantly, how do you invest in the 25% of the world that remains subsistence farmers? Without development, what payment streams, dividends or investment, are EM securities going to create? Marvin, you can't tell me that you don't think the billions of people in countries with faster population growth rates don't represent enormous and growing markets. Personal incomes in these economies are growing and with them total profits and tax revenues that pay interest and dividends for the exact securities that you mentioned. Well, Andreas, first of all, I think the faster population growth in EM uh, is a bit of a myth. Most of East Asia and all of Eastern Europe already have negative population growth. Uh, and within roughly a decade, EM countries in aggregate will actually have shrinking populations, whereas advanced economies actually start to stabilize at that point. Um, second, uh, for those EM countries that do continue to have faster population growth, the sort of India's, Pakistan's, Sub-Saharan Africa, you have literacy rates that are 70% or below, and in some cases they're falling, not rising. Realistically, what jobs are workers in these countries going to be doing that robots can't do more cheaply elsewhere? Um, it, and you know, I think the other point is a worker displaced by robots in a rich economy can open some sort of specialty cafe serving his fellow you know, citizens turmeric lattes or become a personal trainer or, or yoga instructor or something like that. In countries where these are unaffordable luxuries, what does a displaced worker do? And then the final point I'd add to this is, if you're just telling me these countries' populations uh, are uh, their growth opportunity, that really seems like a retail opportunity, not necessarily a broad development opportunity that we've seen. Well, I, I certainly don't think EM just represents consumer product opportunities, um, and the poorly educated can do more than just farm. Remember that these countries have significant natural resources. You have focused only on the climbing the value chain model of EM growth, but remember that historically many EM economies have grown through commodity exports. It's true, Andreas, but I think uh, that still implies underperformance relative to advanced economy assets uh, and still poor risk-adjusted returns. With only a few exceptions, uh, historically, commodity prices fall in real terms. Fifty years ago, most of the cost of a car was steel. Today, that same car has the same steel content, but most of its cost is in labor and the capital used to make it. What that means is that the real terms of trade for commodity exporters is falling, and with it their revenues for pay, repaying debt and dividends. But Marvin, in the asset class that I focus on, which is of course credit, EM credit has done very well in the last several years when commodity prices were falling. On average, EM credit has returned almost as much as US high yield credit and twice as much as US IG credit during that period. And importantly, it has done that with much lower volatility than US high yield. To me, your thesis of trend EM underperformance appears rather asset class specific and maybe not fully applicable to all EM assets. Well, I agree. Growth sensitive uh, EM equities and perhaps FX are the most at risk um, from underperformance in the REM thesis. But I still worry about other classes of fixed income, including uh, credit. 
after two decades of rapid growth, EM per capita income growth has really slowed a lot in this last decade um, to advanced economy levels or below. And it's stirring a lot of uh, voter unrest in the form of populist backlashes against globalization in many of these countries. And unfortunately, in EM, these movements are really focused on undermining some of the slow, hard-won institutional improvements that made these places more uh, attractive uh, investment opportunities for investors, particularly in debt securities. Uh, so I think that's a real problem going forward for credit, no? You're telling me that relative risks to EMSs are rising? I'm not so sure about that. Let's not forget that the two biggest crises of the last two decades both were advanced economy crises. We had the global financial crisis centered around US subprime mortgages, and then we had the euro area sovereign debt and banking crisis. Okay, I'm not suggesting in any way that you know there aren't risks to investing in advanced e economies. I'll agree with you there. Um, but. Uh, the starting point for institutions really does matter, uh, and weak institutions do lead to more volatile outcomes. Just look at the collapse in the Turkish lira, or the Argentine peso, in, in the last year. Nothing like that happened to the U.S. dollar in 2008 or to the euro in 2011-2012, the two crises you point to. And even more to the point, when you look at the prices of government securities in these advanced economies, treasuries or German bunds, during those episodes, or even now, and compare them to the reactions of almost any emerging market government bond last year, it's night and day. You know, in times of a risk uh, or, or in times of fear, investors flock to treasuries and bonds, but they sell their EM bonds. Okay, I do admit that during market panics, EM bonds are probably not the most attractive uh, investment. Um, but I do think that over the course of the business cycle, they offer great diversification benefits that will continue to make them attractive. Also, the scope for diversification in EM bonds is only expanding, with new countries becoming more accessible all the time. So, Andreas, I think you've hit upon an area where we can actually agree, um, which is that EM does encompass a wide spectrum of countries at very different stages of, of development, and they're not all equally subject to the shifting effects of technology or to the institutional degradation that I fear. Um, some will likely find their way into the new knowledge economy and generate good returns. Others are going to expose their investors to more significant losses. Um, but what this really means is that EM uh, is no longer a rising tide, falling tide asset class that you know we've seen in the last two decades. Instead, it becomes much more about differentiation uh, and you know put in sort of the lexicon of investors. This is. Uh, a market where you should see an increase in alpha investment selection relative to beta, the broader movement in emerging markets. And that's probably a good thing for investors. Yes, that is certainly the case. Uh, for example, in standard global EM credit indices, we currently have about 80 countries with investable debt instruments. This compares to only about 30 countries uh, 10 years ago. Well, Andreas, I'm glad that we could find at least one area of agreement between us, um, and none too soon as I believe we need to bring this episode of The Flipside to a close. So I'd like to thank you for a really engaging discussion, Andreas. Thanks to you, Marvin. And thanks to our audience for joining this episode of The Flipside. Clients can read the full reports on Rethinking Emerging Markets and the latest EM Quarterly on Barclays Live. 
That's all for now from this Barclays podcast. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on the flip side. For more insights about this topic, clients can log into Barclays Live or find out more at barclays.com slash IB.